Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we can, uh, we can get started. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and goodness to us. Uh, we are especially thankful for Christ, our Savior, as we celebrate this morning uh, the feast of his resurrection and the new life that we have in him. Help us to honor him in our worship. Uh, may it be an offering of praise and thanksgiving. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is, I apologize up front, I, there's no way to make this what I need to make it in, you know, 35 minutes, so it's going to be, it's going to probably feel like we're flying, so uh, again, I apologize, although in that time that we have at the end, uh, just for fellowship, please feel free, we can, we can talk. Um, so the first thing I want to do is we talk about the, sac- the sacraments at All Saints, is focus on our service. And for people coming from a more, a lower church evangelical background, one thing that is immediately different is weekly communion. Um, So one of the ways to think about our service is a word and sacrament service. I want to frame the context of our discussion of the sacraments um, by thinking about how our liturgy works and how our church service works. So, of course, if we think about our service in two components, word and sacrament, we also think about these as two ways of God feeding us, uh, of God giving us uh, life. And so first, of course, is um, the idea of Christ as the word. And so the ministry of the word is one of the central parts of our liturgy and um, Christ, of course, is the bread of life, and we have two senses in which we, have, we get to experience every Sunday Christ as the bread of life. We get to experience Christ as the bread of life through the liturgy of the word, and we get to experience Christ as the bread of life through the Lord's Supper. So it's, it's just, I think, a good way to orient us in thinking about our service and our liturgy is these two senses in which we are being fed. Uh, so the liturgical pattern then, if you think about the structure, I've talked about this before and I've discussed our liturgy, if you think about the structure of our liturgy, it really moves towards the completion of the liturgy of the word after the sermon. And then the typical place at which the service breaks is called the sursum corda. There's a wonderful little passage, I had it in here, but I realized too much stuff. So I took it out, but there's a wonderful passage that Calvin has on the Sursum Corda um, in the Institutes, and it's, it just expresses very nicely what we're doing in the Sursum Corda. But that's really a breaking point from the ministry of the Word to the liturgy of the Eucharist, or the liturgy of the Word to the litur- liturgy of the Eucharist. <clears throat> and as I said, this gives us this, this pattern of God feeding us in two ways, Word and Sacrament. One thing that's interesting to think about, the pandemic was fascinating in this sense. Fascinating is probably not the word that we all (laughs) first comes to mind. But you remember, we kept on thinking, what do we do about communion? Right? And that was a big that was a a big concern is to have an online service without communion. So it's kind of a fascinating way to think about how our, our rhythms and patterns of feeding. Uh, it demonstrated to us our desire to have communion with one another when we were having these virtual services online. 
And so we really, as a session, very quickly thought, how can we get back to having communion in whatever way we need to have communion? But it's interesting, a lot of, a lot of us felt that an online service really isn't a church service. And so it's, it's kind of a, a fascinating way to think about the nature of our liturgy. So why is an online service not sufficient? What is it that feels wrong about it? What was it that felt incomplete about it? And of course, part of it was us being together. Um, but of course, the, the sign and the seal of us being together in Christ is communion. So, so word and sacrament... Um, for churches like us that celebrate weekly communion, of course, the service is divided up every week into these two forms of feeding. So, of course, the liturgy of the word is the portion of the service from the procession, the psalm of the day. As you think, if you think of how we begin, we begin with a psalm and we begin with herb processing. And then we go through a process of us devoting ourselves to Christ and feeding on him as the living word. You know, confession, hymn and psalm singing, reading of scripture, creed, exposition of scripture. This is all part of what we might call the ascent. And the Sursum Corda, which says, lift up your hearts, we're ascending to Christ. Another way that Hebrews puts it is that we have ascended to Mount Zion and we are in the presence of myriad angels, but we're also in essence, in the presence of Christ. So the liturgy of the word is lifting us up. And of course, this is, a, 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 again, I'm sorry, I don't have the quote from Calvin, that we are being lifted up into the presence of Christ. And that's the purpose of the Sursum Corda just before the Eucharistic rite, is to lift up our hearts to be ready to be in the presence of, the, of Christ our Savior. Okay, so another obvious Thing to consider is inclusion of children. So uh, if you look on our website, we have our different resources. And in 2020, uh, Greg published a Lancaster Catechism. And really what it is, is it's, it's a collection of resources. It's a wonderful thing to go through with your children. And um, it's under the heading of the, it's called the All Saints Catechism on the website. Uh, so under shorter catechisms, um, the first one is the Lancaster Catechism, and there are some really simple questions. Uh, how should baptized children be treated? So what we're going to look at, especially this morning, is baptism and the inclusion of children and the sacrament of baptism. I don't want to exclude the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, but we're going to especially focus on baptism. So the question is, how should baptized children be treated? And this is the answer. Such children should be raised in the culture and counsel of Christ as participants in the covenant kingdom and the church of the living God. Thus, they are to be educated in the faith and not in the ways of unbelief. So you can see the concept of the inclusion of children isn't just the inclusion of children in worship. The ultimate concept is the inclusion of children in the covenant. So when we think about this idea of covenant, and of course is from the Reformed tradition, the concept of covenant is essential to our teaching. So the idea, of course, of our children participating in the covenant 
is going to be central to our concept of baptism. So, again, the question, how should baptized children be treated? Such children should be raised in the culture and counsel of Christ as participants in the covenant kingdom and church of the living God. And what this is going to do, and I'll try to emphasize this a little bit later, is raise the question of the essentiality of the church, the visible church. So when we were, again, you know, during the, during the time of COVID, we were very concerned about continuing on Zoom because it didn't feel like church. But it's not that it didn't feel like church. In a sense, it wasn't church, right? So the idea of our... Uh, the, uh, the objectivity of the covenant manifest in church introduces the idea of the essentiality of the church. And so we'll look at, at uh, this a little bit more as we consider baptism. So here's from our Constitution. This is a direct quote from our Constitution. Baptism, as has been nearly universally held in the church, is appropriately administered to the children of Christians in infancy, since to them no less than to adults, are the promises of participation in the covenant, church, and kingdom of our Savior. And to them, no less than to adults, do the benefits of Christ and his redemption accomplished apply. That which is signified and conferred in baptism, therefore, is applicable to infants promised to be in covenant as well as to adults who profess Salvation. So you can see also here the connection of baptism to these two concepts that I've highlighted, to signify and to confer, or the word confer there is sometimes also to seal. So what we're going to talk about is the, the, the signification of baptism and the sealing of baptism. Okay, so, and of course, this is also from our Constitution, and this is classically Reformed language. Baptism is a blessed sacrament of the New Testament, instituted by our Lord as a sign and seal. So, first of all, as a sign. So, as a sign, baptism is signifying something or declaring something. Its goal is to publicly signify and declare, and as a seal, it confers or consecrates. So we, what we want to think about is these two aspects, the sign aspect and the seal aspect of baptism. But then especially think about what this means for our ecclesiology, what this means for our theology of the church, and what this, of course, then means for our uh, approach to children. Of course, the idea of the inclusion of children, not only in our worship, but of course, as well in the Eucharist. So baptism is publicly declaring that a person is, the me is a member of the covenant. So let's just think briefly about what we mean by sacrament. We're going to get a definition in a moment of sacrament. But what we mean by sacrament is, first of all, a public declaration. And you can immediately see how if you're in a non-sacramental church, the uh, sacrament of public confession, I'm, I'm calling it sacrament, sorry, the, the uh, idea of public confession becomes the ultimate sacrament, right? So that if you are publicly um, declaring your faith, that act would form, would have the same function, would perform the same uh, role as baptism plays. So in a 
sacramental church, you can see this is the debate, is to what extent should this sign be attached to a child who hasn't made confession, who hasn't made a public confession of faith. So of course what our theology of baptism argues is that what we've done is that we have this sign has signified something. So what does it signify? What does the sign signify? Well, it's obviously signified the consecration of our children. It's signified that something has has been placed upon them, an identity has been placed upon them that consecrates them or separates them out and apart from the world. And this is where the idea of the seal is so important. So the concept of the seal, not just a sign that signifies something, but also a seal that confers something. So if baptism is publicly declaring that a person is a member of the covenant, it's also sealing or consecrating that participation or membership. Uh, And of course, this is also from our Constitution. The requirement is that the recipient is a member of a believing household or is himself confessed belief. So one of the things we we often don't think about when we're thinking about baptism is the your theology of baptism is intimately connected to your theology of the church. So what you are arguing about baptism is immediately necessarily going to have implications for your ecclesiology or your theology of the church. So let's look a little bit more at our uh, reformed covenantal tradition. So twofold distinction. So first of all, uh, the signs and seals of baptism, uh, or sorry, the signs and seals of the covenant in the Old Testament in covenant theology point forward to Christ. So Calvin is going to argue, he's going to loosely call them sacraments, and he's going to say that the sacraments in the Old Covenant all point to Christ. What this is going to mean is that the two sacraments, the two New Covenant sacraments, then have to be, as Calvin calls it, Christ-manifested. So the two sacraments are, if the Old Covenant is pointing to Christ, the New Covenant signs and seals are Christ-manifested. Of course, they're pointing back to his completed or finished work. So the fulfillment of those signs and seals signify Christ himself and his, of course, finished work, but also signify, as Hebrews argues, all the things that those old covenant signs were pointing to. So uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, point to the completed work of Christ with respect to those old covenant signs and seals. And again, as Calvin says, this is the signification of Christ manifested. Another way that what Calvin's really arguing here is that these are the signification of Christ's lordship and kingship over the things that the old covenant was pointing towards as God's solution to the problem of sin. So, the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of Holy Communion are Christ manifested as victorious over those things. 
Uh, this is uh, just a summary of, of Calvin's way of putting this. The purpose of the sacraments, according to Calvin, is to be a gift of visible means whereby we are made sure and confident of the truth of God's promises as fulfilled in Christ. So that's what he's saying the purpose or the function is, to be visible signs or visible means whereby we are made sure and confident of the truth of God's promises as fulfilled in Christ. So the sacraments, both of them, of course, point to Christ as the Christ's work as superior, as fulfilled, right? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So as the fulfillment of all those things that the old covenant was pointing towards. For instance, if we take the most famous example for baptism is circumcision, that Christ's accomplishment with respect to sin is a fulfillment of everything that circumcision pointed towards. Now, if we take seriously what that means for our ecclesiology and for our theology, it's going to place an interesting spin on what baptism is, the purpose of baptism. Uh, just a real quick point, obviously, in this sense, then, both sacraments are Christocentric. The key that I want to point out here is that the goal of these sacraments is to incorporate us into Christ. And if you think about what this means, the, old, the goal of the Old Covenant sacraments were to incorporate uh, Israel or one into God's people, to make one part of Israel, then ultimately the goal of the sacraments is to incorporate us into Christ. So we're going to talk about this idea of incorporation. Uh, here's a definition from the Westminster Confession, um, just for a, a very classic, solid, basic definition. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God, to represent Christ and his benefits, so again, Christocentric, and to confirm our interest in him, is also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. So uh, in, now we get into, of course, the really difficult, complex question. Of for, unfortunately, I don't have a ton of time to do this. So I'm going to have to blitz through this. But you may know of the debate between... Uh, Calvin and Zwingli, or I shouldn't say Calvin and Zwingli, between a Lutheran view, a Calvinistic view, and a Zwinglian view. And the Zwinglian view sort of reduces sacraments merely to signs. So I had um, the, the language of sign and seal. So if you're wondering what a Zwinglian view would be, it would be, in essence, to remove the seal component of that, to sign but not to seal, especially the consecration component of that. So let's look at just a little bit at this second aspect, the seal aspect. So that's where the debate would be is, how do sacraments seal? What do they confer? Do they do anything? Um, are they just signs? Are they just symbols? So first of all, an interesting idea is these are signs that also serve as dynamic seals grace. Okay, dynamic seals of grace. That's an, that's an odd term, so I'll unfold that, unpack that a little bit. 
So if we think of the notion of the sacrament as a seal, this is the way the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism puts it. Question, what are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by their use, he might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. I think what's interesting about thinking about this is you might say, well, why isn't declare enough, right? Why isn't, why isn't it enough to declare? And I'm going to go back to kind of the funny analogy at the beginning, but a pandemic scenario. Why isn't it enough to have online church? Why is that not sufficient? I think the answer is because online church does not do what, of course, we believe our workly, weekly service is doing, as we are not only declaring publicly the word of God, but as we are also being incorporated into Christ as his people. And that act of being incorporated into Christ as his people, of literally being the church, is something that we can't be in our living rooms. It's something that, ironically, my, my uh, Christian life in my living room is an, ex is an extension of the life that I have in Christ through the church. So what we're doing essentially is, and this is what, of course, Calvin is doing and the Heidelberg Confession is doing, is saying the church has a priority and an essentiality and that my faith as an individual is always going to be considered as part of my engrafting into the church. So what this establishes is the essentiality of the church. Isn't that fancy? <laughs> this, is, this is part of when you teach high schoolers, you got to do stuff like that. Um, so one of the things, again, I want to think about is sacramentalism versus individualism. And, of course, we live in a culture that is pushing us ever more and more towards a, a kind of atomic individualism. And so I want to compare a little bit um, what I would consider to be, this isn't just an ecclesi ecclesiological question or ecclesiastical question, it's also what you might call an anthropological question. What is our anthropology? What do we believe um, God is doing with us? And if we think, if we imagine for a moment, one way to think of this is, in the Old Covenant, God was incorporating the believer into Israel, but in the New Covenant, no longer are you being incorporated into a people, but now God is dealing with you as individuals. So that's a, that's a you know, that, that, the idea there is this, that would be a superior, that's a superior transition from dealing with a people to dealing with individuals. And of course, that wouldn't be our anthropology. Um, I would make a sort of a fortiori argument. If it's the case that God was incorporating the believer into Abraham, into the covenant, into Israel, how much more is Christ incorporating us into a people? So if he did it then, how much more is he doing it now? So in a sense, what that means is your theology of the church, you have to have a thick theology of the church and not a thin theology of the church. And what that means, of course, is you're also going to have to have a thick anthropology rather than a thin anthropology. So I, I think one of the dangers of the non-sacramental approach 
is that it really, what it does is it thins out the concept of a people and a covenant. So I think uh, that the anthropology of individualism, what it tends to do is it makes the individual prior to a people. So the church is then going to be simply the accidental aggregate of individuals. In other words, individuals are first, and then we're going to form a church out of the aggregate of those individuals. And I do think that this is, first of all, it's not biblical. I don't think that that theology is a proper biblical theology of the person. If you think about the, um, maybe the salvation story par excellence, um, the uh, prodigal son, and the concept of adoption, when God saves us, he is adopting us. When God saves us, he is making us his children. When God saves us, he's making us sons. Right, So salvation is filiation or adoption. It's sonship. And of course, that concept of sonship means we belong to a family. We belong to a people. Um, and of course, this is a, a covenant concept par excellence. So one of the chief gifts of God's grace is to incorporate us into a people. And I love this scripture. It's you know, Peter's, you can imagine Peter speaking this to Gentiles. And this is, I think, the ultimate example of what I'm calling the a fortiori argument. How much more are we being incorporated as a people? So this is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you can see that this picture of becoming God's special possession is to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, right? So you weren't the people of God, but now you are the people of God. And you can see how much this Peter's concept here presupposes a corporate identity, that your identity is as belonging to a people. It's belonging to a nation. St. Augustine in the City of God sort of famously says, well, really, if you're a Christian, you're a member of two cities. You're a member of the city of man, which is the nation you inhabit, but you're also a member of the city of God. And the entire argument of the city of God is to say, to compare the destiny of these two cities based on the founder of these two cities. So he says the founder of the city of man is Cain in Cain's act of violence. And of course, the founder of the city of God is Christ. And so when you are incorporated into the city of God, you have Christ as your Lord. And of course, the early Christians who were being persecuted wouldn't say Kaiser Kurios. They wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. And they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord because they were saying Christ is Christ has ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has created for himself a holy people. And this holy people that he has created, his church, my membership in that nation makes it such that I can't say Caesar is Lord. So this, is, this, is, this implies that early Christians understood their membership into a people. I think that if we compare that to a typical sort of non-covenantal approach 
to the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments, the idea might be that God worked corporately with the people, his elect, Israel. So if we think especially about Yom Kippur, um, you know, the scapegoat ritual, uh, circumcision, Passover, of course, you could see how these, if we view these as sacraments, those would be acts of incorporating the individual into Israel and God working corporately with the people so that the old covenant would be nation-oriented and corporate. And the idea is that there's a kind of superiority that emerges in the new covenant where God in the past was working corporately, but now he's working individually. And again, I think this is a, this is a problematic argument referring back to the a fortiori argument that I was making before. If he's in the Old Covenant, incorporating the individual into a people, how much more is he doing that in the New Covenant? How much more do we belong? How much more are we connected to Christ by our participation in his kingdom? So if you, if you look back at, at the definition of baptism that uh, we have in our Constitution, one of the things it says is that it makes us a participant in the kingdom of Christ, right? So that emphasizes, of course, then what St. Augustine is calling the city of God, right? Over against, you know, the nations, you have this unique city that he's created, that he's cast out into the nations um, so that he might redeem the nations. But the people that are cast out into the nations are his people, his ethnoi, his nation, so to speak. Okay, so um, the sacraments then seal the covenant of grace upon the recipient, making the recipient uh, as though the recipient belongs to Christ. In belonging to Christ, we are engrafted into his church. So the sacraments are signs and seals of that covenantal engrafting. And what this does is it signifies, I only have two minutes, so I'm sorry if it feels like I've been flying. Uh, this signifies the essentiality of the church, the bride of Christ in salvation history. I want to point out something really quickly that um, is an interesting exegesis of the typical view of the way that we celebrate communion. So a little book on covenant communion that... Um, Greg was the editor of, is, is amazing. It's a wonderful book. But one of the things that that book does is it analyzes the idea of us discerning the body of Christ. What does it mean to discern the body of Christ? And uh, historically, people have focused on um, the interior confession that is necessary as we discern the elements and what the exegesis does, and I think this is, this is a wonderful and accurate exegesis, does is it looks at actually the mistake in the Corinthian church wasn't discerning the body of Christ correctly. The body of Christ, this is the body of Christ. And what does it mean to discern the body of Christ? It means to discern the way that God has uniquely spiritually bound us together. So in the Corinthian church, what was happening, as you know, is the wealthier members of the church were celebrating a love feast prior to the poorer members of the church. And the poorer members came in, and the wealthier members had already celebrated their love feast. And so Paul's exegesis is, you have split, or you have divided 
the church, and you haven't rightly discerned the body of Christ. So what we're doing in communion is, in a way, doing something that we actually can't do while we're on Zoom, right? Which is being knit and bound together in you know, this particular congregation as spiritual, mystical members of the body of Christ, which is spread back in time, which is spread geographically throughout the earth, and which, of course, is extending forward in time. And so what we're essentially doing in communion is literally being incorporated into one another as a people. And this is why I think one of the things, and some of you have had this experience, how you celebrate communion. I remember for a long time, you know, I kind of went into my, what I would call my communion box and, you know, do, do my work with God and just to make sure that I was properly prepared. And interestingly enough, I think one of the things that celebrating communion the way that we do almost forces us to do is to think of this as related, not me and Christ, but it's us collectively being incorporated into Christ. And part of that incorporation is to make us his church, to make us his people. To be engrafted into Christ as a member of his church is to be engrafted into the new covenant of grace. And, and this is where I, I just want to point out the last thing uh, as, I, as I finish is if you think of the Passover meal and the way that, if we use the a fortiori argument that I was making before, the way that children were protected in the Passover meal, right? So the, the action, the goal of the Passover meal wasn't just, of course, to protect the individual. It was to protect the household. And the, the purpose or the function of that meal, of course, was to save the house, when we think about our children, what we are doing in church is we are incorporating him, sorry, our child or our children, we're incorporating them into the household of God so that they can be separated from the world and freed from the wrath of God. And, and that picture of the inclusion of our children, even when they're noisy, um, <laughs> is a picture of their ability to participate in the fruits of the covenant that separate the church from the world. And what we're doing is, it would be, it would be odd, as you can imagine, if I am you know, a member of the city of God, but my children are excommunicated into outer darkness and are not members of the city of God. If we think of the Passover meal, how much more has Christ conferred upon us the capacity to make our children benefactors of the fruits of his covenant of grace. So uh, just Galatians 3.29, I don't know if you've ever thought of this verse that way. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what, what Greg would always emphasize is the idea of being an heir, of our children being heirs, of our children participating in the promises of the covenant. And that's the ultimate goal of, of our of uh, the way that we worship is to incorporate our children into God's covenant of grace and to see them raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but also as fully understanding the benefits of the covenant of grace. Let's pray.
Dear Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you do incorporate us into a people, that you have made us your children, that you have adopted us, that you have sent your spirit into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. Thank you that even this morning you have incorporated us into a people, that you have unified us together mystically to be your bride, that you have made us not only the bride of Christ, but that you have made us your sons and daughters. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to joyfully rejoice this morning as we celebrate Christ our Savior through word and sacrament. In his name we pray. Amen.